All right, let's pray. We'll get into more Christology. Lord, we thank you for who you are, for the person of Jesus, um, for your sacrifice, for your humility and submission, and um, the fact that you laid down your life for us when you are King of kings and Lord of lords. You are the most transcendent being, yet you humbled yourself and took on flesh. God, I pray for uh, our understanding this morning as we look into your nature and uh, seek to have a better understanding of who you are. I pray that we would have hearts that are set on you, that we would be humble ourselves, that we would have the same mind that is in Christ, and um, that we would reflect that humility. God, help us to um, just worship you today, that you would be at the, the forefront of our minds, that you would be at the the pinnacle of of our thoughts this morning. Um, we pray that you'd be glorified in everything that goes on in this building here and uh, beyond. God, we we seek your glory and we pray that uh, that you would be lifted up. I pray this in your name, Amen. Amen. I didn't check the first class. Alright, so we've been looking at the names of Christ in Christology, and now we're going to go on from that and look at the nature of Christ. And it's really kind of vital that we looked at the names of Christ before we got into the nature of Christ. And today we're going to focus a lot on the deity of who of Jesus, um, which ties in with the names that we have been looking at for the last couple of weeks. And so it's going to be important to remember as we go on. And as we look to next week into trying to understand the hypostatic union, we have to first have a, a solid understanding of the fact that Jesus is divine. And so I know that we've talked about that quite a bit throughout the series and that we are constantly beating that drum, even not in this series, but you know when we're in 1 Corinthians or Acts or any other series of this church, because it's important and it's a doctrine that is so under attack, but it's one that we want to be solid on so that we um, don't fall into these these errors of, of heresy, um, saying that Jesus is anything less than God. All right, so looking at the nature of Christ, uh, what is it? This thing always lags on me. I'm not quite sure why. But um, what is it that we believe about the God that What do, you say? what do we believe about the Godhead? And what do we believe about the Godhead? The one being and three persons. One being, three persons, and co-equal, co-eternal, um, singular, plural, singular and plural, and having equality. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Singularity, plurality, and equality. That is vital. We want you to always remember those three words when we're. Um, thinking about trying to explain the nature of the Godhead. Um, that's not a word that we often use, and a lot of the time when people use that word Godhead, it's misused. And um, Because it's not a word that is often used, that's kind of one of those red flags for me when I'm talking to somebody and they bring up the term Godhead. Um, what do you mean by that? Let's define that. And, um, make sure that we're on the same page. Why do we believe that about the Godhead? It's in the Bible. Oh. Atta girl. All right. No further explanation needed. And that's what the Bible teaches. It is our uh, sole infallible source of authority. Because Constantine told us because of the council that no. That's what the world Sorry. will say. We didn't have a Bible, uh, a full canon until. 3.5 or 381 or whatever, but um, we've already looked at how there was a, a canon around clear before that. There was an understanding of what God had inspired and handed down to the church. Uh, what was Jesus doing before he took on flesh? That's maybe a little bit more difficult question than the Bible tells us, right? Fellowshipping perfectly with the Father and the Holy Spirit. All right. Showing up sometimes. Yeah, we looked at those Christophanies last week, right? And how he showed up, and um, even in in human form sometimes before he came on flesh, but not always. And, and 
important. What were you saying, Melissa? Uh, holding all things together. Yeah. From Colossians, is that where you're at? Mm-hmm. Appearing to Isaiah sitting seated on the throne. Yeah. So it's not like he just came into existence at the incarnation, right? That's when he took on flesh. Um, that's another important thing to remember to keep us out of the, the heretic camps that Jesus is eternal. He has existed from from everlasting to everlasting. No point where he was created, no point where he's going to um, cease to exist, including the cross, right? He didn't cease to exist at the cross, um, but he is Lord over life and death. All right, so the pre-incarnation. If Jesus is God, then he eternally existed before his birth. Um, they're just coming to existence at that point. John 1 1. Let's look at these. Um, we've looked at these before, but let's look these up and remind ourselves of these important verses. Who's got John 1 1, John 17 5, and Philippians 2 5 through 6? I can do John 1 1. I got 17 5. All right. Philippians 2. All right. She said with excitement, passion, and zeal. All right, John 1.1. 1, 1. You know, we could also do what Jesus told us plainly in John 15, when he said, I am divine, and you are the branches. <laughs> uh, is that right. the original Greek? <laughs> <laughs> Melissa's covering her face. We all know. We see the ring, Melissa. Alright, John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Alright. Doesn't get a whole lot clearer than that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. Alright, John 17 5. John 17 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Alright. So, in that verse, we see that he had that same glory, that same honor um, with the Father before the world was. And what happened? Why is he having to pray that prayer? Why does he not have that glory at that moment that he's praying that prayer in John 17? I know it's early, but roll with me. Why did Jesus have to pray that prayer in John 17? To glorify me with the Father that I had, past tense with you, before. Yeah, trap. Because he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, so he was a, looked like a filthy sinner, but he wasn't. But he looked like one of us. That was weird, but you know. Roll with it. Just roll with it. Roll with that. Yeah, yeah. we'll do it. We'll roll with fix that. Fix it also. But roll right, pretty. Fix it. No, Philippians well, two. I don't. Okay. So you're asking me to explain. Never mind. <laughs> Let this mind being you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. All right. So he was in the form of God and yet didn't consider it robbery, right? New King James? Um, yeah. Yeah. He didn't consider it, um, he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Is that NASB? Um, so yeah, those are two different kind of pretty different ways to phrase it. He didn't consider it robbery, so um, he wasn't trying to put himself in a place where he wasn't when he was emptied of his, his glory. Um, but he was going to return to that position of glory, to the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. So, Jesus is God, um, and he existed before the incarnation. They just come into existence at that particular point in time. Alright, what was Jesus doing before he came to Earth? We kind of covered that already, right? We talked about the Christophanies, talked about him sitting on the throne. Um, but we'll break it down into a couple of areas. So there was creation and then uh, he was acting as a messenger. So Let's look up those passages and see what we can glean from those passages. Um, we've already looked at those first two, right? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. All right. So that is pretty exclusive, right, in his creation. So not just did everything come into being through him, but nothing came into being um, apart from him. So it's not like he was creator part one, and then there's creator part two, created some other stuff over here. It's not like um, we've talked about before that he was first created and then he created all other things, but there's nothing that has been created that he hasn't created himself. He is the sole creator. In Colossians 1, 15, 16. Who's got that for us? I have that. All right. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All right. And again, it's pretty clear, right? All things. And you really have to take and twist that and make it say something that it absolutely doesn't to to land at any point where he's not creator of of something where there's one sole thing in the universe that he had created because the the divine author the holy spirit went to extraordinary lengths to tell us it was all things everything in multiple passages and as you mentioned before Melissa, in the next verse it says that not only did he create these things but he's actually holding them together in him all things consist um, there's nothing that can exist that has a potential or possibility of existing without him holding it together. In Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Now give me Hebrews here. Alright. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, <clears throat> in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Alright. Through whom he made the world pretty cool. Alright, not only was he actively involved in creation um, and, and speaking it into existence and then holding all things together since creation, um, but he had this other role we want to explore, the role of messenger. In Exodus 3, we see that he comes to, uh, to Moses and he speaks to Moses in the, the burning bush. That was one of those Christophanies that we started to look at last week. So let's turn to Exodus 3. Alright, I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, Now Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord, remember we talked about how that's God, it's unique in saying that it is the angel, not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord, uh, pre-incarnate Christ. Christmas. Thanks, babe. Uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside he to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. So it was the angel of the Lord who appeared to him, and God who called to him from the bush. Um, one of those reasons why we're able to look and to say definitively that the angel of the Lord is uh, the Lord himself, right? It's Christ the messenger. This would, if someone wanted to deny that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ, I don't know how they would interpret this, because the angel of the Lord appeared to him from the bush. The Lord, in verse 4, saw and God called. Pretty interesting. Never preached on that before. We should preach on that sometime. Yeah. There's a lot going on there. Mm-hmm. There's a ton going on there. Yeah. Uh, let's keep going throughout the, the chapter. Let's jump down to verse 10. Um, it says, Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So, again, this, this being speaking to them from 
the bush, speaking to Moses, the angel of the Lord, um, the Lord who saw, God who called to him from the bush, um, is now saying that he's going to send uh, Moses in his authority so that he can bring his people out of Egypt. Let's jump down to verse 15. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Um, I skipped 14. Uh, I should go back and read that. God said to Moses, I am who, who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And then jumping back to 16, says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So there we see his covenant name, right? That he is the I am, the one who is... Again, without beginning, without end, he is not the created one. Do you guys remember the the word that we use for that in our um, attributes class? It's an incommunicable attribute, an attribute that belongs solely to God himself. Eternality and essay, right? So, yeah, none of us is eternal. We all have a beginning. Um, but God is without beginning, and his essay is speaking to the fact that he didn't get this privilege from anybody else. He didn't have a mom or a dad. He didn't have anybody else who um, made him or created him, but he is self-existent in and of himself. That's amazing. He, the uh, name that he gave himself is just a beaver, like the most fundamental element of any language like mm-hmm. if you're learning a language like the first thing you learn is the, the saying to say i am that's kind of amazing the present tense beeper yeah and then going back to um john 1 1 in the beginning was the word um that's very fundamental too that word word um you can't communicate you can't formulate a sentence without word without logic without reason um, so yeah, very foundational and fundamental. We can't even begin to contemplate reality apart from God. We can't give any reason why um, the words that are coming out of my mouth right now make any semblance of sense, right? Um, without God, it it doesn't work. Doesn't fit together. All right, Judges 13. What's going on in Judges 13? Let's turn there together. Anybody know off the top of their head? Yeah, that's what's going on throughout all the book of Judges, right? Right. Um, That's why they had Judges, um, to try to keep them on course, on track. Um, Judges 13, we're dealing with a particular judge. You guys remember which judge we're dealing with in 13? I think it's Samson. What's that? It is Samson. Yeah, let's read through... um, are you there right now, Trev? No. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll pick up verse 3. Um, Judges 13, verse 3. It says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman. Okay. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. <clears throat> so this woman is barren. She has no kids. Uh, will somebody pick up and read a good chunk for us from verse 8 to 23? And again, we're going to keep our eye on uh, the Lord and, and what we know about the angel of the Lord and what we can glean out of this passage. 8 to 23. Who's got that? I'll do it. Okay. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. 
God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. And then Manoah arose and followed his wife, and when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now when your words came to pass, what shall be the boy's come to pass? What shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, or drink wine, or strong drink, nor eat any unclean, unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, so that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah said that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, or knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things. Nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. All right. It's kind of a wild passage, yeah? What do we see about the angel of the Lord in that passage? He's God. That's quite a bit. He is God. Yeah. How do we know that? They said we saw God. <laughs> and they fell down on the ground and he didn't rebuke them. Like yep. All angels do. Pure. He accepted their worship. They said he is God. Why has he not killed us if we've seen him? What is the Lord is Jesus. Mm-hmm. Is there significance is, to when he said my name is wonderful or whatever? Isaiah 9-6. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never noticed that before. Really cool. mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you saying? He said the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. So I mean, like, he's allowed to take the honor and glory, but they didn't know about Jesus back then. So. <laughs> yeah. That's one of those pre-incarnate appearances, right? Before his incarnation, he appeared. And... What was he doing in this appearance? What was the purpose? Showing that this lady is married and she's going to bear a child. <laughs> yeah, so he's delivering a message, right? He's acting in this role of messenger. Um, and how was that perceived initially? What was their understanding of this man who had come to give them this message? It was evolving, right? Towards the end, they realized this is God. He left up from us in this miraculous way. Um, I can't believe we're alive. But initially, they they weren't taken aback by his glory, right? They weren't caught off guard. He wasn't uh, beaming or shining. It wasn't immediately clear to them that they were speaking with the one who was holding them together in that very moment, the one who had created them. Yeah, and that's what glory was veiled. That's what I was going to mention too. Is that when uh, Manoah or his wife described him, they say man. They don't say he was an angel. In verse six, she said, "A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God." And it isn't until the very end where it says, "Then Manoah knew he had seen the angel of the Lord." Yeah. Yeah, just some guy too. Hey, come from him. They're going to make him some food, right? Um, and it it slowly becomes clear to them that they're talking to somebody who isn't just a man. Well, verse 19 also says that um, he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, there's no one that performed the miracles except God. Right? Except for by the hand of God. Except for by like the hand. Moses, who he looked at in the last chapter, he does, but only by the power yeah, yeah. of God. At the direction, yeah. Yep. All right, let's look at Zechariah 1. Towards the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 1. Again, let's keep our minds focused on the fact that we're looking at Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, um, and we are looking at his role as a messenger and his ministry of uh, delivering a message. So I'm going to read from Zechariah chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? with which you have been indignant these seventy years. The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. So the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. That's a lot. Um, Explain to me what's going on in that that passage. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem? Verse 13, the angel answered the Lord, or the Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words. What? Speaking to Jesus in this particular passage, like the fact that they didn't capitalize the Lord that's what the conversation is. Well, he didn't include the man who was among the myrtle trees, starting back at verse seven. You got the man on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees, and he plays a role in the setup too. Yeah, so this man among the myrtle trees. Um, all right, let's just do 7 to 11. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, as follows. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. Well, I think, like Jerry said, um, we see the the angel of the Lord, Christ, speaking with God and communicating as a mediator, telling them, uh, this man by the myrtle trees, what's going on, and uh, declaring to him the future of of Israel and his future plans for Israel, which you really kind of get into as you go throughout the book of Zechariah and how God has a plan for Israel. But I think this is one of those glimpses into uh, inner Trinitarian communication, kind of like what we see in John 17, where Jesus is praying to the Father. And in this specific respect, Jesus is acting as a messenger, delivering this message to this man, um, letting him know what to expect with 
in regards to the future of, of Zion, the future of Jerusalem. Uh, 17 again proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So Jesus acting as a messenger and um, seeing a distinction in the, the persons of the Godhead, which is cool. Um, I don't know how I got on that, but we'll go with that. Um, thoughts or questions on Jesus' ministry in creation or as a messenger or anything else to add to that? And I think looking at the, the next verse in Colossians, we can see that he's holding all things together. So his ministry of creation is ongoing. It wasn't just at one point in time, but he continually, continually holds all things together. Uh, we wouldn't be able to stand here if he weren't actively involved in creation moment by moment. All right. Geisler says that once the sun came in permanent incarnate form, never again does the angel of the Lord appear, though an angel appears from time to time. No angel that commands or accepts worship or claims to be God ever appears again. As Jeremy mentioned, that's um, vital to understanding who the angel of the Lord is because he does accept worship. Other angels, other apostles, uh, prophets, they say, no, you get up off your feet or on your feet. You stop worshiping me right now because I'm not God. There is but one God. But the angel of the Lord, he has no issues accepting worship because he is the one true God. Ryrie says that he often acted as messenger to various people. In Genesis 16, that's when the angel of the Lord was speaking to Hagar, um, letting her know that um, she will have a, a, a bunch of descendants um, through Ishmael. He guided and protected Israel in Exodus 14. That's where he was in the, the cloud, leading and guiding his people as they were exiting, running away from Pharaoh. He was the instrument of judgment on Israel and God when God sent a pestilence on the people in 1 Chronicles 21. And he was an agent of refreshment to Elijah. 1 Kings 19, um, that's where the angel of the Lord comes and gives water and food um, to Elijah to preserve him for 40 days and 40 nights. So he was ministering to and uh, providing for him in that, that particular experience. Jesus claimed deity. Um, that's important. We're not going to hit all of those, but we'll hit a few. Um, but that's, you see down the bottom right, there are more. So I remember I was, for five years, I worked at this place up in Ogden, and I worked with a, a minister of the Jehovah Witness organization. He was like the top dog. And there was one occasion where he was talking to the students that we were there um, working with, and he said, never does Jesus claim to be God. And, yeah, and I didn't say anything. Um, not that time. I said things plenty of other times, but I was caught off guard, and I still kind of kicked myself for not saying anything. Um, but he absolutely makes claims to deity. So let's look at a few of these. Um, let's look at the top three on, on either side. Who's got Matthew 12, 3 through 8? Who's going to grab that one? All right. Matthew 16, 16 and 17. All right. Jerry, Mark 2, 9 through 12. Melissa, John 4, 25 through 26. All right. Walker, uh, John 5, 15 through 18. I got it. All right, and then John 5, 36 through 47. That's a bigger chunk. Can you give me that one? All right. It's important. I mean, a lot of times, too, people will concede on John and say, well, okay, John is the book where, you know, later on they decided Jesus will be God, and so he puts a lot of stuff in there about Jesus being God. But it's important to know that the first three Gospels also have that same content. Yep. I don't know those ones. Can you read it? Yep, go for it. But Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, and he and his companions, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, 
which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not you not you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Alright. So what would the temple be in in that passage, according to our, our study last week? I know I'm kind of phrasing that differently, but in the Old Testament, there was a temple. And what was the purpose of the temple? Sacrifices. Sacrifices, okay. But it was ultimately looking forward to these sacrifices, these. right? It was a type of, of Jesus. It was just a shadow of Jesus. And that's what he's kind of drawing out here. He's doing the same thing with the Sabbath. The Sabbath was pointing forward to Jesus. It was a, a picture of Jesus. And he's saying... No, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who established the Sabbath. I'm the one who put the Sabbath into place and told you guys to keep and remember the Sabbath. Don't come here and try to tell me what I need to do in regards to the Sabbath. Um, the Sabbath is is my my thing that I established, right? I am Lord even of the Sabbath. That's pretty cool. All right, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 16, 17. Yep. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. All right. So Peter says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, That's some, something you picked up from some men. Uh, he says, No, blessed are you. This is, this is true. And in fact, it's God who has revealed this to you. So he affirms that. He doesn't uh, rebuke him, but he embraces that title. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And as we talked about, again, in the names of Christ, Son of God wasn't saying that he's anything less than God. He was claiming absolute equality with God. Um, who's got John 5, 15 through 18? I've got it. Okay. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Alright, so again, there we see him calling God his father, is making himself equal with God. The Jews understood um, what he was saying in that in that respect. So uh, back in Matthew 16, when Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he isn't saying you're, you're a lower form of deity. He's saying, no, you are God in the flesh. All right. Uh, Mark 2, 9 through 12. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. All right, so before he even does it, he tells them why he's going to do it. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to I'm gonna show you... Um, what you're looking for. You're looking for him to get up and walk because you want a, a physical uh, proof of who I am. But he also says, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. And they understood that only God had authority. Isaiah, what is it, 43? Somewhere in Isaiah says, uh, nobody can forgive sins except for God. All right, John 4, 25 and 26. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I do speak to you and he. Hmm. Again, he said it pretty clearly, right? I am he. All right, and then pretty much all of John 5 
Jesus is defending his deity. And he's talking about these witnesses that he has. So as we're going through this this section in John 5, remember it's following the section before in John 5, uh, where he claimed equality with God, and they understood that he was claimed to be equal with God. And he's saying, I'm not just speaking on my own authority. Um, the law says that you have to have two or three witnesses, and he goes on to give several witnesses of his deity. So who's got that passage for us? Yep. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given to me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you did not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are which, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I do. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If it, if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do you, you do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. All right. So, uh, again, he's saying, I'm not speaking of my own authority. And before we got to that, he said, well, there's John the Baptist. He came, and that was his, his ministry, his role, right? He was the forerunner to point to the Messiah, and he was testifying on me. But I have works that are even greater than, than John the Baptist, which I do. Um, these, these miraculous works, the works that the Father has given me to do, and that which I'm doing, they are testifying to me. So I'm going around, I'm healing the sick, and I'm giving sight to the blind, and I'm doing all these miraculous things. And that's pointing to me. That's testament, testimony of who I am. And he says, the Father himself gives testimony. In verse 37, the Father who sees me, he has testified testified of me you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form so that's really calling them out you guys who say that you're religious you don't even know the voice of god and he himself is testifying of me and then he says the scriptures that you look and you look in them and you think you're going to find eternal life in the scriptures the scriptures are pointing to me just like the the tabernacle the temple the sabbath they're all pointing to jesus as a type of jesus the scriptures are pointing to the Messiah. And he said, don't search in the scriptures and think that you're going to find life in, in those words innately, but those are pointing to life, capital L, right? Jesus is the life. And it is he who, um, who actually brings about life. Um, he is God himself. You guys all have a chance to write those down because... We're getting ready to move on. I know there's a lot there. We're not going to go through them all today. But Jesus absolutely claimed to be God. Um, probably my favorite one on here is John 8:58, where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. So talking about his pre-incarnation, the fact that he didn't just come into existence at the incarnation. He says, No, before Abraham was, I am. And they look at him in bewilderment and confusion and say, Dude, you're not even 50 years old. What are you talking about? They think he's nuts. But he's saying, no, I, I created Abraham. I created um, Adam and all, all the prophets, right? I'm before all of them. Deity of Christ. Three chapter ones we need to remember. We've already looked at them a little bit. So John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. So remember that when you get into a conversation with anybody who's doubting the, the claims of Jesus to be God. Um, each one of these chapters will point out the fact that Jesus is divine. And so we'll real quickly run through and uh, break that apart a little bit. So John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word is the pre-incarnate Christ. Uh, we know that by looking down at verse 14, the Word became flesh. So context is king. We need to look at context, figure out what's going on, right? The Word is Christ. Uh, in the beginning, speaks to the eternality of Christ. He wasn't with, or he was without beginning, without end. And then with God and was God, uh, speak to the plurality and the singularity within the Godhead. So you get all three of those, plurality, singularity, eternality, in that one verse. So 
pointing people to that one verse. Even if remembering those three chapters is too hard. Um, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1 shouldn't be too hard, but if it is, John 1, 1, very beginning of the book, uh, that was John's purpose in writing, to let us know that the Word is God. And make sure you're using your Bible when you do that. As we talked about before, other people will take and they'll insert that Jesus was a God in a New World translation. Jehovah's Witness will say, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was a God. And the same man I was telling you about, this Jehovah's Witness minister, I brought my Greek New Testament to work and I showed him. There is no uh, article there. And he said, oh, well, yeah, it, it's just, it, it's put there for, for clarity's sake. And he started mumbling and stumbling, and he didn't know what to say because before he had adamantly told me, well, that's what the Greek says. That's what the Greek says. And I told him, no, it doesn't. And I brought it and showed him, and then he, he backed up a little bit. Well, that's just for clarity's sake. Um, yeah, the, uh, the new Jehovah's Witness app, jw.org app, actually provides an interlinear with the Greek in the New World Translation. And one year at Onion Days when they had a booth and I went over there, he brought up the interlinear because I was talking about the Greek. And there, there was the Greek with their New World Translation. So um, Side by side. Yeah, yeah, well, just right on top of each yeah. other. NRK and Halagos. And when it says, and the word was God, there in the, the Greek, it very clearly doesn't have that indefinite article. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was showing him that, and it was like, oh, well, I, there's like, our translation is still better. <laughs> it's like, it's right there. I mean, all you, you don't even have to like learn Greek. You just have to learn just a few basic principles of how all communication works with articles. Yeah. And it's not there. And uh, anyway, so if you ever have an opportunity when you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness missionary or whatever they call them, ask them if they have the app. Yeah. Their witnesses. Let's see if they can find the, the letter A or the word A in uh, the Greek there. Yep. All right. Uh, again, continuing on in, in John 1, going down to 14, the word became flesh. Indeed, he takes on humanity and maintains both natures. Um, that's going to be important next week. We have to remember that. Maintains both natures. So he's not um, setting aside his deity and taking on humanity and then picking up his deity later. He maintains his deity, but he is taking on humanity in addition to his deity. Glory. Um, it says that we saw him with the glory as of the only begotten. And so in seeing his glory, they're seeing his deity with his humanity, realizing this is unique, right? This is something different. We were witnesses to his glory. The only son, a title that is related to deity, just as um, son of God is related to deity. And only um, is speaking to the fact that he is set apart, just like only begotten. Um, remember, monogenes, only begotten, right? All right, Colossians 1, 15 16 says that he was the first word, not that he was born, not that he took on that um, existence at that point. Again, it's a title of power and authority. Uh, he is the creator. Only God creates. No other creator except for God. And it's through him and for him. All creation is Christocentric, making him the chief recipient of glory. So, we've kind of been through this, not just this morning, but weeks past. Any thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, continuing on, Colossians 1, 17 and 18. So 17 says that in him all things hold together. Um, let me see if I can grab 18 real quick. says that he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Remember, firstborn, first place are speaking of the same thing, speaking of his preeminence, his position. So before all things means before all of creation, right? Um, is that how it's supposed to read? Yeah, it's yeah, just the it's just uh, weird. animations got thrown off. You can gotcha. check those before. Yeah, I did. <laughs> all right. Um, and then hold together means that he sustains all things. Um, again, everything would, I don't know what it would do without him holding it together because it wouldn't be here to explode or implode. It would just not be, right? 
uh, first born from the dead, fully God in bodily form, proven at the resurrection. Not that he became God at the resurrection, but it was proven at the resurrection. Remember in the Old Testament, there were people who were raised from the dead, but he was a firstborn from the dead who didn't return to the grave, right? So speaking of eternal resurrection, um, which we will experience, everything will be raised either to eternal life or eternal death, but he was a firstborn from the dead. All right, continuing on 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, his cross, the very one that he was holding together, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So fullness of God, and that's important, 100% God. Um, he doesn't lay aside 1 or 2 or 3% of his deity. Um, that's going to be vital, looking at it next week. Reconciliation, it was by God, for God. He was the one doing the reconciliation. And then by the blood of his cross, the God-man possessed a cross on which he bled in order to make reconciliation. Um, what a thought, right? And again, thinking about the fact that he, even before he went to the cross, he was actively holding that tree together, knowing that he was going to be hung on that tree. Um, he was involved in sustaining it all 33 years that he was walking on the earth in preparation of carrying it and being hung on that cross. Real quick, we're going to fly through Hebrews 1. <laughs> We've been through Hebrews 1. Um, it's like review. All right. Jeremy says. It's 1029. Yeah. We're going to jump forward. We'll come back to Hebrews 1. But uh, hypostatic and let's look at this just to get our, our tongue sweat a little bit. This is what we're going to look at next week. Hypostatic union, big word, but important to our understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is one person possessing two distinct natures, his humanity and his deity. Uh, he is 100%. Each nature in this union of two natures occurred at the virgin birth. He did not possess physical body in eternity past. So those are concepts we've been going over for a little bit now, but uh, we're going to get into this actual word, hypostatic union, and look at some of the ways that it's twisted and misunderstood. So that would be good. All right, let's pray. God, once again, we pray that um, you would give us a, a continued understanding of who you are, a growing understanding of who you are, that we would grow closer to you, not just in knowledge, but in, in relationship, that we would be drawn to, to just worship because of who you are, because of the great depths of uh, the nature of our divine God. And God, we pray once again for the, the service coming up and fix our hearts on you. Um, God, we love you and praise you. Amen.